We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. What's a What do you call an Arsenal Vision post-match podcast with no Paul, Tim, Clive, or Scott? The best one of the season. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Elliot Smith, and you can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. Uh, for a little while now, I had been planning on speaking with Lewis Ambrose about uh, the players that came from Germany to play for Arsenal. Uh, he is a keen observer of the Bundesliga, a Dortmund fan, uh, someone who has written for Arsblog, and he is going to join us momentarily. So that's what we're going to do, and this was going to be a segment of a podcast, and it actually just turned into a podcast, because as is typical with this podcast, it went longer than I expected, which is great because he had a lot of good things to say. Uh, you will hear a lot of fun stuff in here about Aubameyang, Mkhitaryan, Bird Leno, Socrates, uh, Kolasinac, the Ozil German national team situation. You will also hear me forget how many players are in our squad uh, from the Bundesliga, typical fare. Uh, I am recovering from a cold, so not at my absolute peak, but Lewis was uh, on fine form. Coming tomorrow, we will have a mailbag podcast with the whole team, and they'll be answering your questions. So this is a little bonus, chance to get Lewis's take on uh, all the players that have come over from Germany, how they're doing for us, what he makes of their roles in the team now, and a little bit on what's happening with the German national team. So I uh, hope you enjoy it. We're going to introduce Lewis, and then uh, we'll be back with the mailbag podcast uh, probably tomorrow. All right, uh, Lewis is on Twitter at LG Ambrose. Hello, Lewis. Hi, thanks for inviting me on. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on. You are a, a keen observer of the Bundesliga, uh, despite being an Arsenal supporter, and that gives us an ability to dive deep 
uh, on some of the players that have been previously uh, Bundesliga players who are playing for Arsenal now. Just really quickly, uh, as a summary for people who may say, well, why is this gentleman so knowledgeable uh, about the Bundesliga despite his clearly uh, flawless British accent? Why are you so knowledgeable about the Bundesliga? Um, yeah, it just kind of happened at some point. I was at school studying uh, German because for some reason I chose to do that. Um, the, the most beautiful of all languages. Uh, <laughs> and uh, as a yeah, as a football obsessive, I just sort of started reading more things about German football while I was trying to learn vaguely how to sort of go around the language. And it slowly just went from watching highlights now and then to watching a game now and then to eventually watching the Bundesliga every week. And now I live in Berlin. So actually when I sit down at home at the weekend, I can't get Premier League straight on my TV. It's Bundesliga everywhere. So um, right now it's um, I've gone so far down the rabbit hole. There's just no escape. Yeah. And, and I believe uh, Dortmund are your team of choice. Is that correct? Yep. That happened as well. Um, we, we had Jens Lehmann and then Thomas Rosinski and I, read more and more about Dortmund and just started watching them pretty much week in, week out at some point. Well, you uh, you have certainly done a great job writing for Arsblog in the past. Uh, I read an article of yours about Aubameyang before he arrived that I thought was revelatory and actually hit on some of the issues that ironically have popped up this season with him, and we will certainly come to that. So uh, what we're going to do is just discuss with Lewis a few of the, the players like Aubameyang, of course, Mkhitaryan, uh, maybe touch on Mustafi and uh, Kolasinac as well. But let's start with Aubameyang. And uh, I'm a huge fan of the player. I assume uh, seeing as though he was a Dortmund player and now as an Arsenal player is uh, a player close to your heart. I know you were very excited when we signed him and you sort of cautioned about using him on the wing. He did play a little bit there in his first season. So I'm curious to get your take on uh, how Unai Emery has been using him and what your frustration level is with uh, that deployment. Um, relatively frustrating. Um, I think I don't, uh, yeah. So I guess some background is just that Aubameyang did arrive at Dortmund when Lewandowski was still at the club and was therefore forced to spend an entire season out wide. Lewandowski left after one year. Dortmund signed Giro Mobile, which didn't go well from Torino. And Aubameyang carried on playing out wide with Immobile sort of earmarked as the Lewandowski replacement. And it was only really when Klopp eventually dropped Immobile and played Aubameyang down the centre that I think Dortmund really started to get more and more out of him. It was... Uh, yeah, it was from there he had a spell under Klopp down the middle and then really came into his own under Thomas Tuchel in the two years that he was the coach there and ended the and you know, ended his Dortmund career with I think behind maybe only Gerd Müller as minutes per goal in Bundesliga history. So we're talking about a guy who guarantees you goals. Um people talk about his speed, but I don't think that's the one reason that he scores. People talk about his finishing. I don't think he's a particularly good finisher. He actually got a lot of criticism uh, from Dortmund fans or from pundits during his time in Germany for wasting chances. Um, I think the one, the, the reason he scores so many goals is he gets so many good chances. It means he misses his fair share of them as well, but he gets them. He's in and around the six-yard box. He's a poacher. Is 
probably the striker that Arsenal fans have moaned about not having for a really long time a fox in the box. He's not his speed over 30. You know, how often does a striker run through on goal for 30 yards? It doesn't happen that regularly. It's all about the movement, the sharp movement, seeing spaces open up within the six-yard box, that area just in front of goal where Aubameyang really excels. And I think that's maybe why, certainly so far this season, we've not quite got the most out of him. He's scored a few goals now, actually. Um, a couple against uh, uh, was uh, Vorskla when he was playing down the middle in the Europa League. Got a late has, brace against Fulham, didn't he? Yeah, he did. He came off the bench and played as a striker against Fulham and scored twice. He scored a couple of goals from playing out wide as well. But it's not the the one against Cardiff, for example. It's not his archetypal kind of goal. I think I read you tweeting that he had one goal from outside the box in his entire Bundesliga uh, tenure. Yeah, he scored a free kick for Dortmund against Mainz. And that was his uh, only outside-the-box goal. Yeah, and not even in open play. So, That's incredible. Um, yeah, especially for such a prolific striker to, ha- to have so few, it really tells you about the type of striker that he is. So let me ask you this. Look, it's, it's hard to argue with the end product that Lacazette is producing right now, and I think it would be extremely churlish to suggest that he should be dropped for Aubameyang, although I'm not above doing it, but let's put that to one side for a moment. Um, assuming that Lacazette is going to start, in your mind, does it behoove Emery to find a way to use them together more like two strikers, or drop Aubameyang and use him rotationally with Awobi coming in? I mean, do you feel that this this deployment in sort of the half spaces and as a, a sort of winger just ultimately gets neither the best out of him nor the team, or would you keep him in there and let him plug away? Yeah, I think as much as it maybe it sounds illogical, I think if you can't get them to play together, which I think they could play together, but if you can't figure out how to get them to play together centrally, then they shouldn't both play. And that either means you need more creative players from behind to find Aubameyang in the middle of the box. And people compare him to Thierry Henry when he arrived, I think, because he's quick. He speaks French. He's wearing number 14. Um, he's nothing like Thierry Henry as a player. He's, he, this guy's a poacher through and through. Lacazette is more of a, I think it was actually said on the on this podcast a couple of weeks ago, he's more of a, typical hold-up kind of striker, more like Giroud than you would imagine just by looking at him. Or even Van Persie to some extent. Yeah, I think so too. And he, the way it's the, he drops into midfield, he brings others into play. I think that's where you've got a space definitely to play both of them together. They don't want to be in the same spaces. They don't want to occupy the same defenders in the same way as each other. Um so I think you can definitely play them together because that's definitely not an issue. The issue, obviously, is what do you sacrifice to play them together? Is it Aubameyang on the wing? Well, Arsenal are in a strange position in terms of the squad where they don't really have a real winger. Mkhitaryan and Awobi are kind of mixed between a winger and a classic attacking midfielder, a number 10, if you want. I think it's kind of a strange situation to be in, but that doesn't mean that you should start playing a striker on the wing. And I think that's what we're doing with Aubameyang. You're getting a player who's, by the way, for being a poacher, extremely unselfish, but not a guy who is going to beat a man down the wing. He doesn't 
come into play very often. He doesn't link up with the fullback particularly well. The ball kind of, it tends to go out to him and the defense is set and he'll take a couple of touches and then just pass it back to the left back, whoever's playing left back or pass it infield. It just feels like not only are you wasting Aubameyang and his skills, but you're not getting the most out of what somebody else could be providing in that position. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. And ultimately, there are enough games that you can rotate them. You can use one off the bench if that has to be Aubameyang. I mean, it, it seems a little bit crazy to have a player, the talent of Aubameyang coming in off the bench. But this is the situation you create for yourself when you spend over 100 million pounds on strikers, knowing that arguably both of them need to be playing more as the number nine. So, uh, you know, I'd love to see him find a way to play two strikers up front and and let them play off each other more and get them closer together. But if that's not... Yeah, go ahead. When we played against Fulham, I think it's a way that those two could play together. Danny Welbeck came into the side. He's not the same as Aubameyang, but he didn't play on the left wing. He played down the middle, and Lacazette played down the middle. And when the time came down the right, it was Lacazette. When it was down the left, it was Welbeck. They both peeled out wide. They pulled defenders across. Um, Iwobi and Mkhitaryan then took up a position in the middle Arsenal didn't they didn't play with two number nines like two players that are constantly on the penalty spot but it's two strikers it was a kind of classic strike force and I think Aubameyang and Lacazette could be that as well the number of games maybe that Emery feels comfortable sacrificing the midfielder to put them both up there together like we did against Fulham there might not be many matches like that but I think especially at home where against, you take Watford, you take Everton, West Ham even for the, the first half. I think teams that you'd be expecting to beat at home, I'd see no reason not to play the two of them up front. And I think it could really make us more fluid, more creative going forward. Certainly. And I think the only issue you run into there is one of the reasons it worked so well against Fulham was the presence of a Wobian Mkhitaryan filling into those half spaces and wing spaces and... That means, you know, Shaq and Torreira in midfield. It means both Ozil and Ramsey out. Now, Ozil was out through injury, and Ramsey was left on the bench for Fulham. But the idea that Emery is going to pick a system that means leaving both Ramsey and Ozil out on most match days, I just find that hard to believe. So he definitely has a challenge on his hands to make that work. And, you know, one of the players who has impressed me, another Bundesliga player and another Dortmund player, is Henrik Mkhitaryan. He obviously did not impress at Manchester United or really didn't get the chance to impress so much at Manchester United. But I think he's been a, a real breath of fresh air for us in terms of the kind of player that we have here. Dynamic attackers willing to drive the ball forward. He's nothing like the player I thought he was, though. He can be sloppy. He can give the ball away on little three-yard passes. But then he can drive into the box and score or or assist um, in really dynamic fashion. So maybe you can back up a little bit. I have to confess to probably having misunderstood who this player was at Dortmund. Can you give us a little background on how he was deployed there and, and what the Dortmund fans thought of him? He would play at Dortmund. He was signed kind of to play number 10 to replace Mario Goetze. Um, and I wasn't entirely sure what to expect from him. He came from Shakhtar Donetsk. He had a great goal-scoring record there. But, you know, translating the Ukrainian league to the Bundesliga, you'd never know quite what you're going to get. I think we've seen that with a few players. Shakhtar themselves have sold to the Premier League the last few years. Willian at Chelsea is brilliant. Fred at Manchester United so far doesn't appear to be all that. 
Um, so McTerrin arrived at Dortmund, and I'm not entirely sure Klopp knew how to use him at first. I think it's notable that Klopp chose him as uh, Klopp is is kind of a messy to explain quickly, but I'll try and go through it. Klopp doesn't decide, or at least at Dortmund, he didn't decide who he bought. It was a, a group effort, the scouting team, which included obviously Sven Mislintat, uh, the sporting director, Michael Zork, and Klopp would come together. They would come up with targets. But with Mkhitaryan, Klopp actually had the choice between going for Mkhitaryan or Christian Eriksen. And he chose Mkhitaryan. And I think the main reason is his work off the ball. He is tireless. And we know that Klopp absolutely loves that in his players, his attacking players especially. He's tireless off the ball. But at Dortmund, to start with, it was not sure whether he was a winger, whether he was a number 10. In the end, he had a couple of really rough years at the club. He didn't score. At one point, he didn't score for a I think it was about nine months. He didn't score a goal in in this horrible last season that Klopp had at Dortmund. But then under Thomas Tuchel in the first year, or the only year Mkhitaryan played there before moving to Manchester United, under Tuchel, he was probably the best player in Germany. Um, Obviously Bayern Munich won the Bundesliga, but I don't think there was a player playing for them that season that was better than Mkhitaryan. 20-plus goals, 20-plus assists over the course of the whole season. Uh, and then it, he was playing either on the left or the right either. And pretty much how we've seen him play this season for Arsenal, kind of coming inside. I think the interesting thing about how he's played for Arsenal so far, you talk about the sloppiness. And at Dortmund, I think at Arsenal you've seen one player, and at Dortmund it looked like two players. It was a season of sloppiness and missing chances, and you could tell he was trying to do the right thing, but it wasn't coming off. And then there was the last season he was at Dortmund when everything came off, every single thing he tried, it was perfect. I think, I don't know what to expect whenever he plays for Arsenal at the moment, but usually my Twitter timeline or people in the stadium when I've been to, been to games and even myself, you start to get frustrated with him and then he suddenly does something that can turn a game on its head. And The Chelsea game was was paramount in my mind for that. I, he, I thought he started so poorly and then completely flipped the game with uh, two crucial in, involvement. I think the assist, a goal and an assist. Yeah, I did, well, I think the first 10, 15 minutes, it looked like the ball was bouncing off him at Stamford yeah. Bridge. Every single, every time he tried to beat a player, he seemed to leave the ball behind or knock it too far in front of him. And yeah, there was no middle ground. He skied one for about six yards out, empty net. And then, yeah, like you say, he he got the goal, he got the assist and changed everything. He is a bit of a paradox, but I think sometimes people people get frustrated maybe too quickly. I really, really get why Mkhitaryan frustrates a lot of people, why some people don't think he should be playing many games. But if you have a guy who is frustrating as hell and delivers a goal and assist in every game or, you know, is involved every single time that Arsenal seem to be doing something well, which at the moment he is, then you kind of just have to play him and put up with the bad moments, I think. Yeah, I've been impressed with him, and I I certainly think that his absence from the um, uh, Atletico tie cost us that second leg. I think he would have made a difference. And he, he is a player who can create 
with the ball at his feet. I mean, we don't have a lot of that. I think Iwobi this season has developed into a player who can do that, but I think it's something we've been missing since Oxlade-Chamberlain left, who everyone knows I was not a big fan of his. But, you know, it's like Rosicki. He could he could drive the ball through midfield. He could beat players. He could give us a directness with the ball at his feet. Uh, Torreira is not going to do that. He wants to move the ball quickly. Shaka wants to spray the ball. Ramsey is not really a dribbler or a ball carrier. Ozil, again, wants to get into space and distribute. I think having that player who's willing to drive with the ball at his feet directly at the opposition, push them back, create those spaces for teammates is really important. And one of the partnerships that he's developed that I think has made a big, big difference is his partnership with Bellerin. They seem to have a really nice understanding over on the right, which is something that hasn't been the case when Ozil's played out there or when Mkhitaryan hasn't played. So, I mean, for you, is is he a player that you think has to stay in the starting 11 for us to have that balance? I think he provides the balance. I personally, I think Mkhitaryan and Awobi. I think Awobi is similar to the things you just described. Mkhitaryan and Rzyski isn't a bad example. I think he's actually really similar in some ways to Mesut Ozil, but the difference is if Mkhitaryan, Mesut Ozil wants the ball, he wants to come back into the midfield and take the ball. Um, if Mkhitaryan sees that someone else is doing that or that it's just not necessary, then he'll happily make runs off the ball instead. He'll, as you say, drive with the ball. He'll go inside or outside a defender. I think Mkhitaryan is really valuable just because he's malleable. He, And I think it's quite intuitive with him. He seems to recognise what role the team needs him to play and then is happy to play it. Awobi, I think, is actually kind of similar. With him, I think it's more off the cuff. I think he does what he thinks is right in each individual situation that he gets the ball. But both of them do provide that kind of balance. They both are certainly the only two, especially if you're going to consider playing Aubameyang out wide, the only two options we really have to carry the ball to beat a man in one-on-one situations. And I I don't know if Mkhitaryan should play if we have to keep him, but I think Awobi or Mkhitaryan should probably be in the team for every game at the moment. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with that. I think one of the areas where I see a big difference between Awobi and Mkhitaryan right now too, and I think Awobi has been brilliant. Anyone listening to this podcast knows uh, that that I, I think he's had an extraordinary start to the season, is that I think Mkhitaryan's decisiveness is a big difference, that Awobi still wants a lot of touches on the ball to make a decision with where he's going with it. Um, whether he's going to play the overlap, try to beat a man, and, and he's been better at succeeding with what he ultimately decides to do in the final third this season. But Mkhitaryan seems very decisive, and it doesn't come off all the time. But he, there's very little wasted energy with him. He either drives at the defender, he plays the overlap, he takes the shot, he, he crosses the ball. It's, it's always very decisive. He seems to have a great intensity about getting the ball into hurtful areas. And, and you know, I, I again, I'm just super impressed by him because of how much of a disappointment he was considered at Old Trafford. And I'll have to admit to not seeing a lot of him at Manchester United. I don't think he got a lot of ch- uh, chances. But for you, I mean, do you think we're getting closer to the player than you that you last saw at Dortmund? Do you think there's more to come from him or that maybe this is probably the level he's at at this stage in his career? Yeah, I'm, I think he's had a pretty strong start to the season. I think Mkhitaryan, if he's playing every single week, might cut out some of the sloppiness that we've seen. Like we talked about the Chelsea game already. There might be a way to get less of that if he's playing every single week and keep the good stuff about him. But I don't think he's going to hit the heights that he hit in Germany ever again. 
I just think that's past him. I think that was a, a once-in-a-career kind of season that he had. We're definitely getting more out of him than Man United got. We're definitely getting more out of him than Man United are getting out of Alexis Sanchez, which... Um, Hilariously, yep. <laughs> which is brilliant, hilarious, and might say something about Man United. Um, yeah, I, the conditions there just didn't seem right for Mkhitaryan at all. I think he's a guy that when things are... When the chips are down, his shoulders can slump in a way that just looks like he's just not going to turn it on on a given day. And Man United and Jose Mourinho probably isn't the environment to foster good performances out of a guy like that. It was interesting that he he's a really intelligent guy. He speaks, I think, six languages. He arrived at Dortmund. Uh, well, sorry, when Tuchel arrived at Dortmund, he sort of got the best out of him by giving him books to read to open his mind and to relax him and approach the game from a more psychological kind of standpoint, hmm. ways that were getting him down. I don't know. I think maybe Arsene Wenger is more that type than Unai Emery is. Um, but so far, the football that we're trying to play, which, um, well, the football that I think we're trying to play, because I don't think it's completely <laughs> totally clear. clear yeah. <laughs> uh, but I think we're trying to play narrow. We're trying to, combine with the fullbacks especially which Mkhitaryan does brilliantly not only does he combine with Bellerin but he just seems to know when to release the ball when Bellerin comes around or he knows when to make the run when Bellerin has the ball which is all so so important especially when you are Arsenal when you're going to have 60 65% of the ball in most of your games but I'm not sure that we're actually going to get more out of him than we're getting at the moment yeah I, I think one of the challenges too is just for all the players, and, and certainly for Mkhitaryan, these roles that they're getting used to and adjusting to, it's got to be difficult because the lineups are changing most games and the tactics seem to be changing with it. And while we've cried out for a manager who would maybe be a little bit more uh, willing to plan a strategy for the specific opponent, in terms of developing any kind of cohesion for these players and understanding of their role, it has to be a little bit difficult right now because there's a lot of chopping and changing. So, you know, if Mkhitaryan gets a run in the side in that position, I think there's room for improvement based purely on a comfort level of of knowing where your teammates are going to be and understanding you know, the patterns of play. So we'll see how that goes. You know, one thing I, I forgot to mention just really quickly that I think is worth touching on with Aubameyang, you know, I, I think one of the stories of the season is his friendship with Lacazette and just the mood and the spirit in the squad, which seems to be very good. And Aubameyang seems to be a leader in that category, in that department. And he arrived at Arsenal with some questions about um, what he'd be like in the dressing room. And, and you have sort of spoken previously about that being a little bit unfair um, and that he was always, you know, admired and, and beloved by his teammates. So, you know, how happy are you to see that he has been such a positive influence in the dressing room? And, and what's your response to people that were worried about that? Uh, yeah, I think, well, firstly, how many strikers turn up at a new club and give a penalty to their rival striker because he hasn't scored for a little while, um, like Aubameyang did for Lacazette last season. The, the relationship they have is unbelievable, I think, for two guys competing for what is the same spot in a team that a team as big as Arsenal, a club as big as Arsenal. And I think it says everything about Aubameyang that you need to know. He, he admitted... He was wrong the way that he left Dortmund. He apologized for the way that he left Dortmund. He you know, missed training sessions and stuff like that to try and force a move and apologized immediately after the transfer went through and 
and sort of brushed it off like, well, you know, I'm a crazy guy, which I think everybody can attest to. You see the way he dresses and the cars and that kind of thing. And the the massive smile, he's just a little bit off the wall. But I don't think there's a bad bone in his body, honestly. I think a lot of people see the cars and the clothes and they judge him. I think that certainly happened in Germany anyway. It, it, I think there was a very quick to say that he's, oh, look, he's this flashy prima donna and everything interviews the way that other people, players that have played with him, the way everyone talks about him. It just, nothing seems to stack up and support the idea that he's about himself, that he's about glory, that, you know, that he doesn't take his career seriously and that kind of thing. And it was really unfair what happened. Um, he also complained about what he felt was some racial abuse in Germany. He said that his family were never comfortable really in Germany. And then he thought he was getting away from Dortmund the previous summer when Arsenal signed Lacazette. He, Dortmund had agreed that they would sell him if a fee came in that they thought was acceptable. They never got the bid, so he wasn't sold. But I think from his perspective, he should have left Dortmund half a year or he was supposed to leave Dortmund, if you can put it like that, half a year before he actually did. And then the professional that he is, he still went and scored a lot of goals in the half season before he moved to Arsenal last year. I think he was still at a, a goal a game XG anyway from open play. So, yeah, I mean, and certainly right at his at his usual career or last few season average. At the top of my, off the top of my head, I'm not sure, but I think he was at about 15 goals in half a season. Yeah. So nobody you, can you say take that. that. <laughs> well, you know, nobody can say that he didn't put the hard yards in, that he wasn't playing well enough he's just a he's just i think a bit of a character and these problems problems in inverted commas if you will um they existed before as well they before he kind of forced his move to dortmund but it was never malicious he's never had a problem there's never been a problem between him and anyone else in the squad dortmund actually banned him from a champions league game a couple of years ago uh, because he flew to Milan without anyone's permission for his brother's birthday. And he flew to Milan, flew back the next day, arrived at training a little bit late. But it's just, I, I don't think it it's an attitude that he has. I think it's just a, a very laid back kind of approach that he has to everything that maybe some people see as arrogant, but there's nothing to suggest. I mean, his relationship with Lacazette proves it. There's nothing malicious there's nothing about him that isn't actually just quite a wholesome guy yeah i mean look you would be hard pressed to ask for anything better than what has developed relationship wise with Yang at the club especially given the tumultuous environment he arrived into between arsene wenger and unai emery and ivan gazidis and you know having another 50 million pound striker in the club who wants to play the position he plays and being shifted out wide and yet He's been a model citizen and, and developed a fast friendship with his strike partner. So, yeah, I, I think it speaks for itself. As we start to wrap up, you know, one player that doesn't get talked about a lot because he's been so peripheral to the squad, he's missed time with injury, and he hasn't really nailed down a place is Kolasinac. And as Nacho Monreal starts to get older and we look to Kolasinac to sort of take the mantle of left back at Arsenal... I think there are a lot of question marks about him, especially defensively. He is such a contradiction of a player because he's built like a guy who'd be a fearsome defender, and yet he's sort of this light-on-his-feet, dynamic attacking fullback who doesn't seem to defend very well. Um, I know he played wingback. He was in team of the season in the Bundesliga. 
for those of us like myself who are skeptical that he has the defensive chops to make it as a fullback and a back four, uh, where do you stand in terms of his potential of, of taking over from Nacho and making that role his? I stand on the fence um, delicately. I this isn't. I don't want to write say Kolasinac off, but his Arsenal career so far doesn't tell us that he should be the team's left back for the next three or four or five seasons. I think we should sign a young left back anyway. Um, I think we should sign more young players just as a start. As would, you, a general... would you not class Maitland-Niles as, as a, a candidate for that just because he is essentially not... a, a, a central midfielder? Yeah, or even a right back, I think. But I just don't, I don't see him becoming a left back and certainly not a left back that would be so good that would stop us from signing a left back. Were you impressed by Kolasinac's time in the Bundesliga? I mean, I assume so based on his his place in the team of the season, but he was playing as a wingback. I mean, did you have any strong opinions about him at the time? I do. It was a really smart signing from Arsenal. On a, Obviously, the wages are higher because he came on a free transfer, but to pick him up for free, he was wanted by Chelsea. He was wanted by Juventus. That doesn't happen by mistake. I think the everything so far definitely tells us that the back five suits him better. It sort of gives him that protection inside with an extra centre half, and it means he can have that license to get further up the pitch. Where, by the way, I think he's brilliant. Um, I, I don't think anyone's disputing that. But when he gets to the byline, the way that he gets his head up and always picks a man. I've not seen him once, I don't think, just thrash a ball across the box or just stand one up. He he passes the ball to whoever's in the box. I think that's fantastic. Going backwards is obviously where the problem is, but I it was never a problem I saw at Schalke. And the Bundesliga is a league dominated by counter-attacking sides. There's, I think, the natural result when everybody likes to press, then everybody starts to sit back and try and hit you on the break. And I think it's been quite strange with Kolasinac, actually. I, one of the things when he joined Arsenal, I'd have said that he'd just be a solid defender and would sometimes contribute going forward. And it's obviously been the other way around. His time at Schalke... I'm not sure. Maybe this, there was just something about the Bundesliga, something about the opponents, something about the way Schalke played. But he never looked like a defender that was easily exposed. Do you... Uh, sorry, do you think that... I mean, it's a situation now where he, he should be given the chance? Or, I, I mean, is Nacho Monreal the guy you'd go with the balance of the season and, and look to replace in the summer? If Nacho Monreal is playing fine, which I think he has the past few weeks, I would keep playing him. Uh, we're going to have to rotate anyway. If Kolasinac is playing well in the Europa League or in the winter months when Monreal I think, surely can't play every single game, then if Kolasinac is playing that well in those games, he definitely deserves the, a shot at the position. Personally, I think next summer will be the time probably to let Monreal go if we can sign a good left-back. And I would be happy to sign a left-back that that you say to him and Kolasinac that they're fighting it out for the position. I don't think it's time already. What well, He was in the team for a few months last year, then he got injured. I don't think anybody had a good season last season, really. And that's been done to death, so we don't have to get into that. But I don't think it's fair to judge any of our players, but certainly Kolasinac, who had just arrived at the club and only played for a few months before being injured and losing his place. Um, 
solely on what happened last season. So I would be more than happy to go with him and one more out for the rest of the rest of this season and maybe next summer sign a left back and let Kolasinac fight with that guy for the place. Because I don't think, I think if we were to decide right now Kolasinac is not going to be our left back, then we might regret it in a few years. Yeah, it's interesting because it's, <laughs> the more I think about the squad, you know, I started our segment here by saying, oh, we'll talk about some of the former Bundesliga players at Arsenal now, like Aubameyang and Mkhitaryan and Kolasinac and Mustafi, and then forgot, well, there's Shaka and the, there's Bird Leno. And it's really a league that we have all of a sudden uh, put a lot of stock in, in terms of, of finding talent and bringing it into the club. And, you know, I, I wonder just sort of quickly as it crosses my mind, I mean, do you think Arsenal have done a decent job with their recruitment from the Bundesliga? Are there players that you wish we would have had our eye on that maybe we missed out on? Are there players there now that, that you hope we're keeping tabs on? Uh, I think it's always the case that there are players that you don't sign that you could have signed maybe. I think we will continue to look at the Bundesliga as a league where we might sign players, especially with Sven Mislintat heading up the recruitment department. And well, it's one of the firstly, it's one of the best leagues in Europe. It's or well, and the, therefore the world. It's probably been worse the last couple of years as the as it uh, worse than it was the couple of years previous to that. But there are still plenty of really good players. I think something that disappointed me this summer was not signing a young centre back. Um, say, uh, sorry, say Kolasinac. Socrates uh, Papastathopoulos has played well. I forgot Frost. him too. Good God, the team is from there now. <laughs> yeah, yeah so many. Um, yeah, Socrates has, has played well so far, but at his age, Dortmund went and used that money to sign a 20-year-old French under-21 international, uh, Abdou Diallo. And you just wonder, given the Arsenal squad, if moves like that would have been more sensible. Hoffenheim is full of really exciting players, really talented players. There are players throughout the league, and there always will be because there isn't that much money in the Bundesliga. So youth players have a really clear route to develop and get into the first team quite quite soon, relatively soon, particularly compared to the Premier League. I think it's probably, a few years ago it was closer to, say, the Premier League and La Liga than it was League Un, and I think it's sort of dropped down more to that League Un kind of level now. But the academies in Germany are brilliant, and I think we'll continue going back there. And so far, if I had to evaluate how we've done, I think we were about par. I think Aubameyang was an empty net. You, you can't, you know, how much scouting does it take? Signing to- a thirty goal a season striker yeah. is not is not uh you know, in his prime is not rocket science. No, <laughs> um, Kalasinac, you would sort of err on the side of it not working out so far. Leno and Socrates, it's really early days. Um, I'm I'm not a big fan of, or I've not been a big fan of Burnt Leno during the last couple of years. So what were your his- chief complaints about him? I think he just it makes too. I don't think there's anything that he's really bad at, but I think he just makes too many mistakes. All goalkeepers make mistakes, and obviously, when you make a mistake, you let a goal in. Um, the really good goalkeepers make maybe two or three a season, and the last few years, Leno. I think his reputation's been built largely on him getting into the team at Leverkusen when he was really young and people just assuming that young players get better and not that they may have already peaked. 
I think Leno four or five years ago was better than he is now or than he was last year for Leverkusen. And I think his reputation was just built on, oh, well, he was in goal when he was young, so he must be really good. I I, I don't see that. I see too many mistakes. Uh, so far, that hasn't happened at Arsenal. And maybe he was just comfortable. Maybe he needed to move to a bigger club in a bigger league in a different country. And that was the thing to refocus him and reset his career, if you like. Well, you know, um, the, the question I would have, though, I mean, ultimately, he is in the team right now because of an injury to Petr Cech. But, you know, a lot of people felt he should just be starting from the off. I mean, are you someone who thinks that it should have remained Cech's job and should remain Cech's job when he when he gets fit? Or, or do you feel that we have to see what we have in Leno? I think the... Firstly, I think when you spend that much money, twenty between 20 and 25 million pounds... Mm-hmm a goalkeeper then you shouldn't be spending that much money on a goalkeeper unless they're going to be your goalkeeper because we really could have used that money on a winger or on a center back or on Aaron Ramsey's contract and saving rhinos you know I think when you have that kind of outlay then the guy has to play it's not like Czech is going to be Arsenal's goalkeeper into so put Leno in figure out what you've got and the sooner you put him in, this either he's great, which is good, or you've got longer to figure out if he's great and if you need to reassess if you need to sign another goalkeeper or not. Well, I mean, I th- gosh, that would be a bad situation to have to be in. <laughs> you'd, you'd really like it to work out. I think for me, you know, with Leno, it, it is a simple fact that we did spend the money. We probably have to see what we've got. And also given the desire to play out from the back, I, I just don't see hammering you know, square pegs in around holes anymore making sense. We've been doing a lot of it this season. Czech didn't seem comfortable with it. Leno looks a lot more comfortable with it. So for as long as he's not screwing up, I, I think you have to keep him in the, in the starting role there. And again, you know, Czech's still going to get to play a lot, assuming we go with a cup keeper in the Europa League, in the FA Cup, in the Carabao Cup. He'll get plenty of chances. Um, you know, Shaq and Mustafi, we haven't talked about them, but I, I don't know that we have to because they've been at Arsenal long enough now that you know, I think people have pretty well-developed opinions on them. Um, you know, and we've discussed them a lot on this podcast. But Socrates is one that I'm interested to get your take on because I know you were concerned about him, uh, where he was in his career. He had, by all um, accounts, a very poor season last season in the Bundesliga. First of all, I want to get your take on whether that's true or not. And then secondly, just how impressed you've been with him because I think so far he's been our standout center back. Yeah, he didn't have a good season last season. Um Dortmund fans were, were with one year left on his contract as well were not only happy to sell him to Arsenal but they were overjoyed by the price that they managed to get um, which I think it's, it's just not great when you sign a player and you see fans of the club you've just signed him from being really happy about the way that they've managed to sell him yeah. I think I think it was, part of it was a, a product of the situation at Dortmund where There'd been a, a lot of turbulence in two managers last season. Neither of the oh the and now another new manager at the beginning of this season. So obviously things weren't working out for the club as a whole. Socrates, I think, as a defender, is a guy who is just blood and thunder. More often than not, he goes into every challenge. He wins most of them, but. He goes into them anyway without deciding whether or not he should actually go into the challenge. And obviously then 
if you win 80% of them, that's great. But the 20% that you don't win, it leaves you really, really exposed. So I think when he makes a mistake, it's a big one. Mm. So far for Arsenal, I think we've been... Yeah, I think he's probably been asked at best centre back, but I don't think that's it's not a high bar. I don't get me wrong. <laughs> um, yeah, it's like Petr Cech's been the best headwear wearer in the squad so far this season. There's just not really any competition. No, although I, you know, I think at least look again, standard of competition notwithstanding, uh, there's been an improvement. At least uh, I thought Mustafi and Holding looked okay in the. Um, in the game against Fulham, and holding has been a little bit of a bright spot. Ultimately, though, I think what surprised me about Socrates is just his his pace. He's a lot faster than I thought he was going to be another sort of lumbering ox in, in our central defense. That hasn't been the case at all. I mean, is this just a case of Arsenal fans taking a look at him and sizing it up? Were you, were you aware that he he's actually a lot pacier player than, than we might have expected? No, I think he's quite quick. The one concern that I have, it was something that, happened a lot back in the day with Colo Torre was he had the pace and usually as a defender you see that pace running back towards your own goal and if you're doing that it means you're in trouble and you're in even bigger trouble when you're 31, 32, 33 and you've lost that pace which is exactly what happened to Colo Torre. He, he lost the pace and then it wasn't that he never made mistakes before it was just he couldn't recover them anymore. Yeah, I yeah. think that is oh, Socrates is 30, 31 now. I think that's one of the reasons I was really reluctant to praise the signing when we signed him was just the fact that, right, we've signed a defender and in two years we're going to have to sign one again to replace him. And I, what, Koscielny is 33. We have no idea what shape Koscielny is going to come back from from his, uh, his injury. Callum Chambers was loaned out when we were already thin at the back and now can't even get in the Fulham team. Rob Holding, for me personally, should be, whether it's with Mustafi or with Socrates, Rob Holding should be starting most weeks now because, again, like Leno, we have to figure out, especially with a new coach, is this the guy that we're going to go forward with or not? Or next summer or in January, are we going to have to sign another one? So... I would like to see Holding feature more than he has so far this season. I think, and he's earned it, too. I mean, it's not purely yeah, just from a, a, a discovery standpoint. I think he's been worth it. Yeah, he's come into the team recently. What He played against Watford and Fulham, I think, and played well in both games, uh, particularly against Fulham. Mustafi was good against Fulham as well, I think. And, yeah, I think uh, this year for Arsenal, a lot of it is just a, should be, I don't know if it is, uh, but I think it should be about deciding, okay, is this a guy we're going to keep? Or is this a guy that is going to be in the first 11 next year? We've got an entire new transfer team. We've got a new head coach. We've got quite an old team compared to our rivals. This is really a big year and then a big summer next summer to decide what we're going to do and what the team's going to look like for the next two years, not just this season. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, it's uh, it's going to be a lot of turnover at a period that you'd, you'd like there to be some cohesion, unfortunately, because Emery comes in, he starts to implement his plan this season, and you'd like that plan to then be in place for a few seasons, uh, and team can just start to build on what's developing instead of having to turn the squad over right away, but that may be the situation we're in. Um, I think we can finish just talking about Mesut Ozil really quickly. 
we gave him all the money. And <laughs> um, it's talk about tumultuous. It's, it's at a, a very challenging time in his life with what happened in Germany and German national team. So the first thing I wanted to ask you is just, you know, you personally, do you think that Ozil deserved the contract he got? Were you happy that we signed him to that deal? I, a lot of people have already compared it to Theo Walcott in 2013. I think having not sold Alexis or Ozil the previous summer, that the club had to keep one of them. Um, the long-term, I, I think sometimes you just have to save face. The long-term repercussions could be really, really bad. Uh as we're starting to see now, I think with Aaron Ramsey is just the first, I'm sure of many who will think that they deserve parity with Ozil, especially if Ozil becomes a player that isn't integral to what Emery's doing, then suddenly you're paying all this money for a player that maybe is starting two thirds of your games and isn't really deciding those matches. I think it's a really tricky situation. The club has to, the club has to do PR as well, and PR sometimes includes keeping your best players or letting them go. I think the reason, I think the Urzel contract is probably the reason we're losing Aaron Ramsey. I, I'm sure that some people are saying it's not, it's not dead, or it could, you know, still be rescued. I'm pretty sure it looks like it's definitely on life support at best. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't see any way this comes back around, and Aaron Ramsey stays at Arsenal now. Personally. So, yeah. uh, Probably understand why the club did it, but maybe not uh, sure it was the right move long-term. Yeah, I I think if they didn't do it, they'd have been killed. And by doing it, they may have killed themselves for the next couple of years. Because if we can't build a team around a player that's earning that much money, then that's already an enormous handicap that you're giving yourself. Yeah, look, I mean, the one thing people do tend to forget when you give wages to a player you already have is that it's saving you a massive fee and having to replace that player. Had we lost Ozil for free, we would have had to buy someone very expensive to replace him and then put that person on a big wage. Now, maybe not as big as what we gave Ozil, almost certainly, but combined with the fee, it probably would have added up to the same thing. The issue for me is not necessarily the deal we gave him, but to your point that he's not knocking on the door of player of the season every season. You know, with that wage, we need him to be the Premier League assist leader every season and a candidate for player of the season. And that's certainly not what's happening at the moment. Um, And some of that may be due to extrinsic circumstances. So before we say goodbye, and without getting too political, I just want to get your take on what's happening with the German national team, the way Ozil has been treated um, you know how that's being covered in Germany and versus maybe the way it's being covered in England and elsewhere, and, and just personally how that affects you seeing the the treatment he's received. I thought it was kind of, I, I was kind of surprised how much it blew up over the summer. I think it became a very convenient story. The the Erdogan story became very convenient for the German FA and the national team when results were bad. But it was a story before then. It's they didn't fall back on it, if you like. I think it blew up because or it blew up as much as it did because they focused on it before the tournament. Um Ozil was asked to to basically come out and say that he was wrong to meet with Erdogan, which he refused to do. 
and then for, he did meet with the with the German president and talk to talk to him and he was there for an entire day with Ilkay Gundogan they both talked to the German president they were very open to that apparently happy to go along they both did go along so that should have been the end of it and it wasn't I think it wasn't for political reasons because there is a like there is across Europe and as you have in America as well there is just a a movement of to not maybe not a movement to the right, but a movement from a, a far right faction that is growing. It's certainly the case in Germany right now. I think they that kind of corner clings to the idea that you know Urzil, Gunduan, Jerome Boateng aren't truly German, and I think it was pandered to a little bit too much or far too much by the media. You can expect it from some outlets, but when um, when you're watching TV, and I was, I can't remember, I think it was the last group game I was watching here when Ozil was actually really good, I thought, against South Korea when Germany were knocked out of the World Cup. He created three or four really good chances. And he was, I, I think Leon Goretzka was subbed off. And the German commentator on the game, it's not his job to really give strong opinions. He's just there to tell people what's happening. And the German commentator went, well, I think Ozil was much worse than him today. <laughs> and I just, I just thought that was unbelievable. Yeah, um, I've never heard something like that from a commentator before. And yeah, Germany were knocked out the World Cup, and the next day, every single you know, Sky Sports News, completely mainstream, non-political TV stations, were saying, "Oh well, Mesut Ozil was rubbish." Not you know, the story wasn't that Germany went as holders were knocked out of a World Cup at the group stage for the first time ever. It was that Mesut Ozil was rubbish, and then you don't have to be a scientist to put two and two together and figure out, oh, look, you know, they're telling people that it's Mesut Ozil's fault. They they were telling the, the whole media, the newspapers, uh, the television stations, they were telling people, Germany out, Mesut Ozil was bad. There's your analysis. Not to mention, uh, by the way, I, I mean, the integrity of, of that statement is so suspect when Germany's biggest problem seems to be that every time you turned your head around they had three players running at their goal unmarked um you know in 40 yards of space so i'm yeah, not which, sure if Mesedoza was supposed to fix that they they nudged past peru in last month's preseason international friendly this month they've just lost in the netherlands letting in two goals on the counter-attack um just at the weekend. This isn't a, a thing that you can just pin on Mesut Ozil, which I saw it was pinned on Mesut Ozil during the World Cup, which is a real shame. And then on top of it all, and the point that really proves how this was agenda-driven, politically driven, was just the statement that, that Ozil released when he announced he was retiring. And he talked, he, he didn't accuse people of racism. He Firstly, didn't accuse the team of racism, which since then every single member of German football history, as it feels like anyway, has come out and said, oh, there's no racism within the team. And he never said there was. Um, just zeroing in on something he never said in order to make his point look less valid, which is just really, really poor form from anybody who's done that. And on top of that, the the immediate response in Germany was just very defensive and 
he didn't accuse anyone of anything. He actually, his, if you go through his statement again, he listed explicit examples of being racially insulted, being marginalized and things like that. And then the reaction to the statement in Germany was, oh, no, that's not true. Yeah, that's which crazy. is just appalling. He he spoke about, you know, he was supposed to go to his old school and was told, oh, actually, we don't want you to come here anymore. Uh, after the Erdogan thing, his photo was up on a he, – he had his photos taken with Germany's partners before the World Cup and Mercedes-Benz, the, the DFB, the German FA, demanded to Mercedes-Benz that his his face wasn't anywhere after – during the tournament. This was before Germany were knocked out. And the way he was treated is no matter what his political views are, which we have no idea what his political views are, no matter what they are, he shouldn't have. <laughs> you don't fight that back by marginalizing a guy. Not to mention by, he's a German citizen. I mean, this is not a case of, not that it would even be valid under any circumstances, but I mean, this is this is ethnically motivated. This is not a citizenship issue. You know, I, I can not understand that's that's giving too much credit to people but you know if he was an immigrant whose citizenship had maybe more of a cloud over it again it would still be nasty business but it might be based somehow on an attitude about immigration and you know how you become a german citizen and the tapestry of of german culture but this is a purely ethnic issue right i mean mesodozel is a uh a german-born citizen am i i'm correct in saying that right yeah he was he was born in germany he's i think a lot of people struggle with the i think a lot of people there's obviously many nationalist people i think a lot of those people and maybe more people outside of that as well struggle with the idea of dual nationality the just the the idea that you can feel this bond that you just kind of have with more than one nation and because Mesut Ozil has this connection to his Turkish heritage, it means he can't truly have the connection to the German side of his life or his upbringing or his nationality, which I think is just nonsense. Um, but I think that's the view that people have, that he, he's not committed enough to being German, and that's why he also thinks or says that he's Turkish and therefore he's Turkish. Yeah, it, it's all cover for racism and bigotry in my mind. And yes. I, I, I will say, look, it's interesting because the issue of the hyphen is an interesting one because of the way it is so different in the United States. Um, the United States has many, many problems, of course, but uh, when it comes to our heritage, we are an immigrant nation, and so people wear the hyphen with pride. I'm an Italian-American. I'm a Polish-American. I'm a German-American. Yeah. I'm a, a, a Swedish-American. I'm a Mexican-American, Japanese-American, whatever it is. But the hyphen is not seen as somehow denigrating your Americanness. Um, you know, uh, yeah. we celebrate St. Patrick's Day in this country, and we celebrate Cinco de Mayo in this country. And in some ways, uh, we do these things condescendingly in a way that doesn't necessarily... Um, cover us with a, a lot of pride or, or um, uh, doesn't exactly glorify us in terms of our respect for these cultures, but we have embraced those parts of our culture into our national culture, whereas in Europe, in a lot of cases, the hyphen is used to denigrate that person, to suggest yeah, that I, somehow their, their, uh, their connection to their country is less. Is that correct? Yeah, I think I think less is exactly the word. It's not that Mesut Ozil wasn't German. It was he just wasn't German enough. 
Right, yeah. Or many have not seen him as being German enough or as German as he's supposed to be. I mean, if you are, if your name's Peter O'Malley and you were born in New York City um, and you call yourself Irish-American, no one is going to question whether you're American. You know what I mean? It's just, it's a very different cultural reality um, between our our two cultures and continents. Yeah, it is. It's it's almost like the dual nationality makes one or both of the nationalities less valid. Um, yeah, is is I find it very hard to get my head around personally, and I feel quite bad for Ozil. I just think he's I think he's been through a lot that nobody deserves to go through. Um, and yeah, you can see it all comes back to to this dual nationality at the end of the day for me anyway. It comes back to the fact he's not German enough, the fact that he wouldn't sing the national anthem uh, before matches, and it's all just ridiculous. Yeah, well, and it's unfortunate because ultimately, I mean, he is a brilliant player and he is now carrying a lot of weight on his shoulders. I I was surprised and disappointed the extent to which his teammates also sort of abandoned him in his moment of need. Um, Was that sort of the last sort of sting in the tail for you with this is just the extent to which his uh, Germany teammates failed to have his back and, and quite to the contrary, maybe stuck the knife in. I think, I think it maybe even spoke to the ignorance. A lot of them. I think that what Ozil complained about, I don't think they even understand it. I don't think they recognize how he's been maligned or why he's been maligned. And I think that's a, just a sad comment on how open-minded maybe some of them are or how they've been educated or maybe even what some of their views are. And it, it to be fair, I mean, it moved the goalpost, right? Because a lot of them came out and said, oh, well, there's no racism in the German national team. And Mesut Ozil certainly never accused the German national team of having racism within it. Um, yeah, I mean, so it's um, the the president of the German FA still now is a, is a man, is a former politician who once said that multiculturalism is a myth. He said it in in Parliament, um, which is something Ozil quoted in his statement when he retired from the national team. And I, I think when a man who said multiculturalism is a myth is the president of the German FA, you have to question whether or not there's an intrinsic issue, or just an issue within the FA running through it to its very core. And the the extent to which any player who is multicultural can ever feel totally embraced and accepted by that team. So you can understand well, why Ozil would be suspicious. If they turn their fortunes around, I'm sure nobody will mind. But I, if Germany happened to continue going through a bleak spell, then you do wonder who's going to be blamed next. Yeah, well, it's, it is an unfortunate chapter in the German national team's history, certainly in Mesut Ozil's history, through no fault of his own, and one that I think as Arsenal fans, there's maybe some hope that it would cause him to you know, want to prove the doubters wrong, so to speak, um, but maybe he's wearing it a little more like a burden at this time, and you could totally understand that. Having said that, it could just be totally unrelated to his performances, and it could be more about the role Emery's asking him to play and an unfamiliarity with that. So we'll see as the season goes on. I think uh, I think that's definitely plenty. Um, we could do another hour on the comedy stylings of uh, Shodran Mustafi at center back, but I don't think that's needed. We've done quite enough of that on this podcast. We, There'll be an hour of it at the weekend. So, Well, it, yeah, let, let's hope that uh, there's more of him uh getting jamie vardy in his pocket than jamie vardy racing by him but we'll see um 
Yeah, so, uh, Lewis, I, I want to thank you very much. I have been uh, really looking forward to talking to you about this because I think we it's it's just incredible. As this podcast went on, I felt like we were growing new Bundesliga players. I started off naming four of them. We ended the podcast. It's basically the whole team. So uh, a very apt conversation at this time and a way to break up the monotony of the international break. Lewis is on Twitter at LG Ambrose. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, and thanks for listening. Look, we are going to do a mailbag podcast in the next day or two that will be out uh, before the weekend. So uh, we'll be back in uh, full full operation here with the international break over mailbag podcast by, by the way for those of you who are not familiar with the term simply means we'll be answering your questions as submitted on twitter facebook and on our website arsenalvisionpodcast.com so uh get in touch leave a question we'll be addressing that with paul with tim with clive with scott uh and even myself if you had any interest in hearing what i have to say although you kind of have to hear it either way so uh my name is elliot smith you can block me on twitter yankee gunner leave us five star review write nasty things about us in the comments and we will come back uh, with your questions 10, us nil. The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour 3-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com.